Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Jane, let me welcome you to Southeastern Seminary. It's great to have you here. Uh, Dr. Aiken, thanks for being a part of this panel as well. Um, many of them don't know, but you are planning to be out of town today, and you made special arrangements to be here because you thought this was an important conversation and what we're doing with our women's ministry program is so cru- crucial to Southeastern. So thanks for making that a priority. Well, it is an important part of our school and love the fact that God is bringing more and more ladies to study here at Southeastern. And uh, we just thank the Lord and we're very uh, grateful for that. Jen, this is sort of, a, sort of a hallmark or a moment and a conversation you and I started almost 18 months ago with some other ladies around the SBC and uh, Dr. Higgins here um, on Southeastern's campus where we started thinking about what does it look like for us to re-envision our ministry to women program and you were so instrumental in some of our thinking about how to retool that program and it's great to have you on campus when we have sort of the official new launch. As you know, we've got uh, almost five days set aside um, for um, activities around our ministry to women's program and you're here to teach in that and so thank you for being here and being a part of that. It was a huge mood elevator for me to walk into that room this morning and see 50 to 75 women who are just eager to learn and who are receiving uh, formal theological training. That is a huge gift. I can't wait to see the dividends that that room is going to pay off. Yeah, I talked to some other people last night and they were like, it was so encouraging to have so many ladies in one room after the same task. Um, And I was excited uh, to hear those reports. So again, thank you for being here and making this a priority. Uh, the, the seminary community doesn't need an introduction for Dr. Aiken. They know him well, but, but they do need an introduction for you. So I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about uh, your background, your family, what do you do at the Village Church, uh, just so that they can get a chance to get to know you a little bit. Yeah, I currently serve on staff at the Village Church as the Director of Classes and Curriculum in the Village Church Institute. So I have responsibility for our adult classes, um, the largest portion of which are the men's and women's Bible studies. And so we write curriculum for those. Uh, I make sure that the teachers are vetted and trained and resourced and that we have a a shared common vision around Christian education. Uh, Often in the church, Christian education is not thought of along similar lines as it would be thought of in an institution like this. And what we've tried to do is take into consideration scope of what we're teaching, what are we about, what are we not about, and then sequence in what order should we teach those things, which sitting in a room like this feels like the most obvious thing to say, but that's not always the case in the local church. So we've built that into what we're doing in the Institute, and it has been a real joy to see that starting to bear a lot of fruit. Um, I have four children. Matt is 23. Uh, He is working on a Ph.D. right now in uh, Pittsburgh, so if you're up in the Pittsburgh area, check him out. Actually, you wouldn't be able to find him, but it's fine. The last time I was up there speaking, I mentioned that he was single and ready to mingle at the event I was doing, and so he's for sure hiding out if he wasn't before now. Uh, Mary Kate is 22. She just graduated with a degree in chemistry. She's doing her student teaching and living with mom and dad this semester. She's getting married January 4th, so we're enjoying having her at home. She's teaching high school English, uh, high school chemistry. And then uh, Mary uh, Claire is 21, and she is a senior at Texas A&M, and she is uh, interviewing for med schools right now. 
And if you notice, none of them are doing what I'm doing. It's a little hurtful. And then the last one, Calvin, the baby, is 19, and he wants to go into nursing. He's a sophomore at A&M. Jeff and I have been married for 26 years, and he is a senior project manager for an IT consulting firm. And around the Village Church, he's best known as Mr. Jeff from Kids Village because he's the one who is the most fun teacher on Sunday morning. That's pretty cool, and uh, what that'd be great to be known to be the, the fun one. He's also uh, the old one. He's the only person with white hair. Okay. In there, so they, All right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we won't tell him you said that. He's aware. Okay. He's right. aware. And your oldest one is doing his PhD in what? Materials science. Yeah. So he. Uh, <laughs> right. I feel the same way. I feel the same way about it. I have about three sentences I can say about what he does. Would you like to hear them? He has an undergraduate degree in nuclear engineering, and to contain a nuclear uh, reaction, you need to contain it in a material of some sort. And he did a project over the summer on the Mars launches, and when you send a ship into outer space with nuclear energy, you contain the explosion in steel. So he's doing 3D printing with steel, is what his That sounds is. very relevant. <laughs> we needed him in Chernobyl. Yeah. Well, we just had a whole family text thread full of Chernobyl jokes yesterday. Because you know what's funny? Chernobyl. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, so, Jim, we've had a conversation here over the last couple of months um, and really trying to ramp up a conversation about calling on our campus. So I was interested, how would you articulate your calling um, and what you do and, and how it is that the Lord led you to get to the place that you're at? How, how do you articulate? What, what words do you use? Uh, I would say that my calling is one that was seen in hindsight, and some of that has to do with just my age and when I was coming through the church. Um, I don't know that women were speaking of calling so much at the time that I was coming through the church, certainly not someone like me who was just a, a mom with a bunch of kids who was volunteering in a role that had not historically even been a staff position. But looking back, I can see that my calling was there all of the time. I, I think I could have probably taught anything. I think I had an aptitude. I was telling the women in the class earlier um, but what I, what I learned in the church was an empathy uh, to go with the aptitude and, and to want to not just teach the Bible, but to want to teach women the Bible. That was the thing that I was really drawn to. And um, over time, that took shape around a message of Bible literacy because what I discovered first in female environments, but then learned was not limited only to female environments, was that many uh, followers of Christ had lived their entire lives attending church and attending things that we were calling Bible study but they still didn't know their sacred text. They would fail a simple pop quiz over it. And so I first grew alarmed about that in, in, in women's circles because those were the ones that I was teaching in and having access to. But I would say that it is a pervasive problem in pretty much any room you walk into in any church. The village church is no exception to that. It was interesting at the village. It looked a little different because since Matt Chandler was our pastor, um, we felt like we knew a little bit more about doctrine in the Bible than other people did. But when it came down to it, we were in the same boat with everyone else. So... Um, it's the thing that keeps me up at night uh, because part of my background was growing up uh, with a tangential relationship, sometimes a direct relationship to the word faith movement. And uh, I, I firmly believe that the first line of defense against false teaching is firsthand knowledge of the text. 
I'm not even saying interpretation and application. I'm saying if you just know what it says, you can shut down a lot of false teaching right out of the gate. So that's what I am working toward, and that's what we're hoping to have an influence on, certainly at the Village Church, but also we hope that outside of the Village as well. Can, I ask, can I ask a question? Sure. So you came out of the word faith influence? Yes. How did the transition happen? Uh, I went to call it, left home went to college and I had seen within my immediate family the devastation of that. I think that sometimes people hear false teaching and they think, oh right, because it's bad to not think right things about the Bible. But what I know is that there are very real and dangerous consequences for wrong belief, like sometimes actual physical consequences. And uh, so it just grew in me a desire to know what the Bible said so that no matter who was standing behind that pulpit, I had a lens through which I could hear what they were saying rather than being a passive listener to what someone else said that the Bible said which, if you think about it, is often the case for many of us in any room we walk into in the church today. We sit and we passively receive information over a portion of the text. We've spent no time in ourselves before we got there. That's how false teaching finds a foothold within the church. You, you, will, you will give an account to God for how well you love him with your mind, not Dr. Aiken's mind, not Dr. Whitfield's mind, not Dr. Higgins' mind. It's your mind. And that's why uh, if we want to be able to, we need to be Bereans. We need to know what the word says so that we can begin to, de to flex a muscle that many of us have either allowed to atrophy or have never exercised that is helping us uh, shape our understanding of what we're hearing. When you went to college, you went to college and you studied business? So, I did, yeah, yeah, English and business, In yes. English and business, right? Yes. And uh, now you're spending your, your life um, teaching the Bible. How did you begin teaching the Bible in a local church? What was that transition like? How long have you been doing this? I have been teaching now for over 20 years, I guess. No, right at 20 years. I, I was just sort of walking toward the thing that was needed in the local church, which I think is a pretty common experience. I actually started, I had, didn't count this in the 20 years, I probably should have. Jeff and I started in seventh grade Sunday school. I had the girls and he had the boys. So I was doing arts and crafts and he was herding cats on the other side of a, of a movable divider. And I learned so much about teaching adults. I thought I was in the holding pen until I got old enough for actual women to actually listen to what I had to say. And what the Lord was actually doing was teaching me how to teach the Bible, period. You can never make things too simple. And uh, so I started in that, eventually um, got involved in women's Bible study and was teaching a women's Sunday school class that they asked me to fill in for a few weeks until they found the real teacher. And I taught that for eight years. Every Sunday is classic. Uh, every Sunday. And, and, and it was in that room in particular that I began to realize the importance of empathy, that you couldn't just stand up and just teach it however you wanted. You need to recognize there was a human receiving that teaching on the other end who came in carrying a lot of hurts and a lot of confusion. And uh, so that was a really important training ground for me. Uh, and just the relentlessness of every week knowing you got to come back. And I was telling the women earlier, uh, I, I call women's ministry the beast whose belly is never full when it comes to content. They're always looking for the next study to do. And when you're doing something like that weekly for eight years, you're not going to go and pick out a packaged curriculum every six to eight weeks. You need a bigger plan than that. So I started teaching through entire books of the Bible, and I thought, well, as long as I'm doing that, I'm going to pick really long ones so I don't have to relearn all the background information every, every so often. And, and that developed in me a heightened awareness of how few places there were 
or in the church where that was actually happening anymore, that the typical sermon series was usually not longer than six to eight weeks. And so when were we ever going to study 50 chapters of Genesis? When were we gonna go through 66 chapters of Isaiah, uh, Matthew, all of the longer books of the Bible that we were just carving into chunks and handing to people in tiny pieces so that they only had spot knowledge of the Bible instead of cohesive understanding. So my English degree ended up being a huge asset because what Bible literacy is addressing is a subset of a greater literacy crisis that we have in the culture. It's not just that Christians don't know how to read the Bible, it's that many of us have never been taught how to read books in general with critical thinking skills. So I actually have been able to bring to bear the English degree on, uh, on how we read the Bible responsibly instead of regarding it superstitiously or like a magic eight ball, but to read it the way that it is asking or you might even say commanding us to, to read it. That's great. Thank you. And I just use the um, business degree to push around everybody who doesn't come in on budget at the yeah, church. Yeah. That's great. That's wise. I would point out that from our students over and over and over, both in the college and on the seminary level, they will say no class was more valuable to them than hermeneutics. Absolutely. Because not only does it teach them how to read well the Bible, it teaches them how to read well any text, and it will assist them not just in Bible interpretation, but in theology and ethics and philosophy and history. So what Jen's saying, there's a pervasive problem of just how to rightly read any text. And so hopefully uh, here at Southeastern through that mechanism and others, we're, we're covering that. The key is then for our students to go out, take what they learn here, and then begin to implement that in their churches like they've done there at the village. Dr. Aiken, you've spent most of your life teaching the Bible too. Uh, you've been a seminary president, you're a dean, but really your ministry has been Bible exposition in local churches midweek and on, on Sunday morning, um, and your uh, teaching has been in preaching um, and raising up expositors. Why have you spent so much of your life dedicated to the task of Bible exposition and Bible teaching? Well, I was blessed in that, well, first of all, when I recommitted my life to Christ as a 20-year-old, and I've shared this before, my recommitment was more transformative than my conversion at 10, partly because I was older, I knew more, and I really did fall in love with the Lord Jesus all over again. Well, as a result of that, I just wanted to know as much as I could about him. And when you get into the Bible, you understand that it was his authority, all of it. Uh, as he says in Matthew, not a letter or a part of a letter will pass away until all of it is fulfilled. Now, I know in context he was talking about the Old Testament. But what he was affirming about the Old Testament, he also lays the foundation for with the New Testament when he says in John 16 that the Holy Spirit would come and lead the apostles into all truth. And so if Jesus loved the Bible and his life was built upon the Bible, then I wanted the same thing for me. Then I was blessed when I got started in Bible college, I uh, was told that really the only way to preach the Bible is expository preaching. And I bought into that and goodness, 42 years later, I still believe that. I believe the way you grow up a healthy church is to teach them the whole counsel of God's word. And nothing is more effective in doing that than verse by verse uh, exposition of God's word. And looking back now over 40 years of ministry, not one thing has happened that would cause me to alter that conviction 
of the healthiest churches I see across our nation and around the world are those that just immerse themselves. I mean, they just jump in week after week after week in the Word of God, just soaking, Spurgeon said, soaking in it. And so that's what I pray that the students that come here when they graduate will go out and do as well for their churches. Because both of you have such a passion and have given so much of your life to teaching the Bible, I'm interested to hear how you prepare to teach. Um, so what's your process from when you have, you've laid out the curriculum, you've laid out the plan, you've, you've identified the text that you're going to teach for a particular time. What's your process from beginning to end, Jen? I just listen to someone else's sermon and rip it off. Is that not what we're all doing? <laughs> well, that, that, that's, that's not the first thing we teach you. Oh, right. I'm sorry. Um, well... I'm, I'm virtually never not teaching when I haven't first written a curriculum. And so a large part of my teaching prep is putting together the curriculum itself. And I, I think of the curriculum, so we, we use what we call the three-legged stool to put together all of our classes at the village and certainly is used here as well, where you have elements of um, work you do on your own, work you do uh, with your peers, and then uh, sitting under teaching over the work that you've done. But all of that is teaching. And so part of my prep is writing the curriculum with an eye toward what can I accomplish when they're doing work on their own versus what I need to accomplish during the time where I'm standing up teaching through the text. Uh, so I'm always balancing that and thinking uh, through how to use those two pieces together when I get up for the teaching time. And for me, because we're doing line-by-line -line teaching according to a curriculum, when I'm on-ramping teachers at the village and saying, here's the way to teach successfully in, a, in accordance with our learning outcomes, my baseline is teach through the homework. So like not in a wooden way, but if you honor the work that the student has put in during the week, then uh, they were going to better be able to connect, oh, this is why this question was asked in this way, because this point was being drawn out. And so rather than downloading content, I'm thinking of ways that we're equipping people with tools so that they themselves are becoming better students of the Bible. So it's an active versus a passive approach to learning. With my own teaching, uh, there's no secret sauce for me. The method that I am telling students to learn is my prep method. I think the running joke is, is that the very first step is to read the passage, and then the very next step is to read the passage. And, you know, you read it over and over again before you get up and teach it. So I spend a lot of time with repetitive reading. And then I start looking for what are the repeated themes. I do a lot of work on my own before I hit a commentary because once you hit the commentaries, they're going to be sometimes arguing against one another. And I'm responsible to teach the text according to my best reading of the text um, and, to, and to be even-handed in the way that I'm presenting opposing opinions and all of those things. So my, but my, my method is the one that I'm asking students to learn. I'm curious if you're taking, say, uh, a chapter of a book uh, of the Bible, or maybe a paragraph, mm -hmm. how much time do you try to spend oh, in gosh. preparation? And I it keep, may vary. I keep thinking it's going to get shorter. You know, like I keep thinking, surely I'm going to get better at this. But I would say any, any week of teaching the Bible study probably takes a solid 15 hours of prep. Yeah, probably 15. How about you, Dr. Aiken? What's your process, and how long does it take you to put together a message? Well, it's similar to hers. I work backwards. It takes about uh, 12 to 15 hours. Now, I, I want to oh, give... Praise God. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to give a word of encouragement. What took me in my first few years of ministry 25 hours 
I have refined down to 12 to 15 because I know where the sources are that I need. I know how to read better. There's a number of things that have happened. I often liken it to riding a bicycle. Uh, when you first start, you fall off a lot. Eventually, you get where you can wobble along, but over time, you get better at it. And so, I have been able to refine my process. Just real quickly, like Jen, uh, I will read a text in uh, repeatedly. G. Campbell Morgan used to say he read through a book of the Bible 60 times before he would even consider preaching through it. Now, I don't do that, uh, though I, I admire that, but I will read a text many, many times then I'll read in different translations. I usually preach out of the ESV, but I always read the Christian Standard Bible. I always read the NIV. I always read the New American Standard. I always read the Message, uh, sometimes the English Bible, uh, the New Living Translation. And then I will also read it to the best of my ability in the uh, Greek or Hebrew text. I acknowledge my, um, my Greek is better than my Hebrew. Uh, but I can still work my way through that. And then what I do is, uh, just like Jen, I'm looking for uh, breaks in the text that show me how the author's thoughts were proceeding. Uh, I don't always preach three points. Text may have two points. Uh, a paragraph may have five points. Uh, so I look for those breaks. I look for key words, key themes, key ideas. I will then structure a rough outline that's subject to change and then I will go to the commentaries. I usually, and I like to listen to good preaching too. So uh, if anyone comes over to my house, uh, and they're all welcome to come over sometime, just get Miss Aiken's permission. But anyway. I'm uh, free later today. You or... Yeah, later over. today around 3.30 to 4.30. Yeah, come on over. Yeah, that'd be fine. Uh, they'll find over there almost 5,000 cassette tapes. These antique things that, that used to be very popular about 15 years ago. But I have 5,000 cassette takes because I would listen to people preaching and teaching on a text, not to rip off their sermon, uh, as was noted earlier, but uh, Adrian Rogers used to say, I milk a lot of cows, but I churn my own butter. And that's a folksy way of saying you can learn from other people. Mmm, butter. Butter. Yeah, butter's always good. So anyway, uh, just milk the right cows, though. Anyway, and then I... Uh, I think we've milked that imagery enough. Well, I think we have, yes. We can move on. Uh, but then I begin to put the meat on the bones. And again, I remind our preachers, you're always going to have an introduction. You're always going to have a conclusion. You're going to start some way and stop some way. And in the middle, I hope that you're going to be explaining well the Word of God. I don't think we've improved on the components of exposition, illustration, application, although uh, Josh Smith was here on Tuesday in chapel, a wonderful expositor, and he just wrote a book on the place of exhortation in the process of proclamation. And I think he's got something. In other words, if we're not exhorting our people, encouraging them strongly, to change how they believe and to change how they act, then we have come up short in proclaiming uh, the Word of God. So I like the idea of exposition, illustration, application, exhortation. And I'll say this and stop. I try to put my body together and then take time away, then come back and write an introduction and write a conclusion because so many preachers who have good content, they never get the plane, to use this analogy, off the ground because they have a very poor introduction and they crash 
without landing well because they have a poor conclusion. And I know what happens. They're tired, they run out of time, so they just throw in there some kind of intro conclusion. It really does matter how you start and how you stop. So I would encourage any public speaker, think through well how I'm going to begin, think through well how I'm going to end, but then in the middle, and I'll stop with this, I believe one of your goals is to teach your people how to rightly handle the Bible. So I'll say it in the form of a question. If your people that you teach handled the Bible in the way you handle the Bible, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? And that's why I love exposition, because I think it is the best way to do it, and it models well for your people how you hope they will handle the Bible when they teach the Bible. That's great. Um, you know, you mentioned sometimes messages have two points, and sometimes they have three points. My memory is the last year or so, you've had some messages with 12 points, 15 points. Um, so I, ha I have no memory of that whatsoever. Um, but I'm not, I can neither confirm nor deny, okay. and I'll leave All it right. at that. All right. Jen, um, I've listened to you talk about uh, your teaching, your teaching process, the way you understand the scriptures, how you approach the scriptures. And one of the things you often say is you talk about your English background and how that's informed uh, your reading of the scriptures and you really elevate the literary qualities of scripture. Why is that so important for you, um, both as a teacher and someone who's training people to read the Bible? Well, I, I think that anytime you set out to teach, it's important to understand, you know, the number one rule of, of public speaking is know your audience. And so if you think about uh, the church today, the question that we have to be asking is what has been overemphasized? What has been underemphasized? How can I contribute to bringing balance to the force? So do you like that? That was Star Wars. Do you guys like that? <laughs> I had four brothers. It's cool. Read a lot of sci-fi. So... When I'm thinking about the message that I want to emphasize, I'm often thinking about helping course correct for something that's been perhaps neglected. And in the case of reading the Bible, I think that what has been neglected in, certainly at the lay level, has been any sense of the Bible as a book. In fact, when I first started talking about the Bible as a book, and clearly it's much more than just a book, but it is a book, it was as, the first reaction I would get was that I was diminishing the specialness of what it was by saying that it was a book. But the reality is that when God chose a medium to communicate truth to us, he could have chosen any medium he wanted. So, you know, there will, every now and then there'll be a Christian film that comes out and a lot of believers will say things like, people are finally going to understand the gospel when they watch this movie. As though what has been given us in the scriptures is not the place you would go for that. And, and I think that has to do with just our, our inability or our sense of inaccessibility to the medium uh, through which God has chosen to reveal truth. And so if I can give people simple tools that are good for reading any book that help them read this most important book, that feels like a really big win for the church. And it does not in any way diminish the specialness of the Bible to say that it obeys rules of genre or that it honors uh, a, a human author's context and personality and lived experience, all the while being the fully inspired and errant word of God. I actually think it makes it 
more miraculous and not less miraculous. But many of us, uh, again, we had, a, we had a football coach teach us high school English, and so we come in at a bit of a disadvantage. Not only that, but uh, here's a little plug for those of you who are going into youth ministry. Right at the point that we hit middle school and high school, and uh, our, our physics teacher was asking three hours of study a night for us with regard to what we were learning in AP physics, our youth director said, you should spend 10 minutes two or three times a day in, in your sacred text and just see what pops out to you. And so uh, one of the things that I would like is for kids who are learning how to interpret literature in their middle school or high school English class to understand that those tools are equally accessible and important to the way that they're reading scripture. And we should read the Bible with more diligence than we would read Shakespeare. We should read the Bible with more diligence than we would read um, Steinbeck or, uh, or even a chemistry textbook. But we need tools to do that. I want to shift gears and talk about uh, education in the local church. This is part of your assignment at Village Church, and um, I've heard you talk a number of times about your assignment there, and, and one of the things that you say is you think there's a, um, there's a unique opportunity and something that should be protected, and that is single gender learning in local churches. Why is that such a value for you? Why do you think that's so important? Um, flesh that out for us. Well. It's funny because depending on what room I'm in, I'm either labeled a patriarchalist or a feminist, so I don't know which way the crowd's going to go today, but <laughs> I have had to speak up on different occasions about the importance of female voices in what have been typically all-male spaces, specifically within the church, and so often it can seem counterintuitive to people that I would be an advocate for single-gender learning environments. Uh, it sounds like what the ask is, is we should do away with any places where there are just men or just women because we're brothers and sisters. And I wholeheartedly believe the brothers and sisters message, but I also understand the, the significance of rooms where sisters gather and of rooms where uh, misters gather. Couldn't resist it. And so... Um, there are different things that happen in single gender environments and specifically in single gender learning environments there are different dynamics at play the more theologically conservative the environment is the more likely it is that women have taken in messages about the way they should enter into a dialogue how often they should enter into a dialogue the tone the amount of times and so what you will find in in non-church settings, so just if you, if you look at the research that's been done on the way that meetings take place in the workplace, you would find that in a room that is 50-50 male-female, the men tend to offer twice as many comments as the women. The men tend to hazard a guess, whereas the women want to be perceived as right the first time they speak, uh, that the men often talk over the women, that the men enter at the thought level and the women enter at the feelings level when they enter their comments into the conversation. So sometimes by splitting men and women into separate rooms when we're talking about something like the Bible, you can create a space for the men to dialogue with one another according to their rules of engagement and the women to dialogue with one another according to their rules of engagement. One of the important things that we're doing at the village in the women's environments is pressing the women toward having a thought level discussion of the text because it is not intuitive for them. They think that when they gather in a room like that, they're supposed to share their junk 
and talk about their feelings. And those are really important things for us to do. That's actually what we're having to press the men to do in the single gender learning environments that they're in. They want to have the thought level discussion of the text until Jesus returns and never talk about the application piece. So, uh, so you can see how this can kind of break out, but it also clearly is going to open up space for vulnerable moments to be shared that will not ever be shared in a mixed gender room. And so particularly guarding women's environments in the church is important to me from a counseling standpoint. Uh, we find that it is the place where a woman is most likely to disclose abuse and think that she will be heard and that she will receive help. Uh, we find that it is a place where women are most likely to first be vulnerable about a marriage struggle or a struggle with an aging parent, all of these things that they are not necessarily going to enter into a conversation that is a mixed gender room because they either they think they're holding up the progress of the conversation or it's not relevant. So uh, I am a huge advocate from a learning outcome standpoint and also from a counseling, just a, a pastoral standpoint of having these places in place. Men obviously are going to talk about struggles that they have in an all in an all-male group that they would never enter into a, a mixed in environment. So it's a both and. You want places where we're learning side by side and where we're in community side by side, and you also want places where we are in single gender opportunities. And Keith, you see this very clearly modeled in the New Testament. Uh, you see the gathered body, a mixed body, uh, when they gather for worship. At the same time, Titus 2 is very instructive about God raising up within the church older mature women that can pour their lives into younger women and grow them up and mature them. He raises up older, godly, mature men to hopefully pour their lives into younger men and raise them up to maturity. So even in the Bible, you see this both and very, very clearly taught. And I know for whatever reason, the baby boomer generation, which I'm a part of, we came through this period of time where we thought, well, no, we just need to do everything uh, together. And uh, so we went away from uh, gender-specific classes uh, to everything. Everything was, was co-ed. Everything was men and women together. In fact, I'm trying to think back through the uh, one, two, three churches that I was in in Dallas over a 15-year period of time. And unless we did a early morning, like 6.30, uh, which I think is of the devil. But anyway. Amen. Thank you. Um, I'm going to do a Bible study. Do it like it's 6 o'clock in the evening, not 6 o'clock in the morning. What's wrong with you people? But anyway, um, that's when you would have a men's Bible study. Uh, otherwise, everything that was in the regular Sunday school uh, process, and we had back then church training, uh, even that was almost always uh, co-ed. And I think we lost something. I think Jen is on to something. And I just know men in particular, there's some things men are never going to say or deal with in front of women. They're just not. But they will open up if it's brothers sharing, uh, ministering, caring for one another. And I have no doubt the same thing is true for, uh, for our sisters as well. You know, a lot can happen from 4 o'clock in the morning to 6.30 in the morning. You're missing out. The only good thing that happens between 4 o'clock in the morning and 6.30 in the morning is sleep. That is the only good thing. Amen. Thank you for that affirmation. The rest of you need to repent and get right with God. And if you are an early riser, it's like What's fasting. You? Keep it to yourself. I don't want to hear about it. 
Jen, another thing that I've heard you talk a lot about, this sort of is going against the grain a little bit as well in terms of philosophy of ministry and the way the churches are organizing themselves. And, and there's a reason for this. I think church plants, they, their bandwidth smaller and those types of things. But uh, one of the things I've heard you talk about is uh, for the churches that really organize around two things, that's the corporate gathering and small group discussions, they're really missing something significant that they need to regain and in that space, you talk about the need to do theological education and training and really creating almost a classroom sort of environment in local churches. And that does seem to be um, churches are moving away from that sort of thing. Why do you think that's so important? Um, and, and Dr. Aik, I'll be interested to hear whether you agree or disagree on um, her ideas on that um, in terms of theological education um, in the local church. So it, it, what you're referencing is often called the simple church model. It's been really popular for about the last 10 years or so, and it's kind of a response to Sunday school wandering off into uh, just uh, a place where it was not accomplishing probably what it had at one point. Not for all churches, but in many churches, I think that had become the case. And then with the rise of the church planting movement, um, the availability of facilities, there are all kinds of things that, that can, can cause this. How many of you have been in a community group or home group or something like that? Can I just see how many of you? Yeah, they're great, and they really are a good place to build community. How many of you learned systematic theology in your home group? Not many of you. You're like, I'm not raising my hand. That feels like a trap. And you are correct. <laughs> um, so the issue with the community group model is that it prioritizes one need as, as, as the main need that we all have, and that's community. And that it is valid that community is a need. It's just that it's not the only need that we have. And so you need more than one tool in your discipleship tool belt. Um, there's a saying, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And that is the way sometimes that we have regarded the community group, that it should accomplish every aspect of discipleship that is necessary for formation. Uh, but the problem with community groups is that it's an organic ministry model. And it's not that organic ministry models are bad. It just means that you are actually allowing some people to opt in and other people not to opt in when you come up with an organic ministry model. Specifically, women are less likely to be able to opt into an organic ministry model than men because we're typically primary caregivers for at least one other human. And so we rely heavily on structure and predictability to be able to say yes to a commitment. Uh, so when the home group model is, well, we're going to meet on Tuesdays for a while, but maybe next year it'll be at a different time. And, oh, by the way, could you figure out who's watching the kids and could you make sure that there's food there? Uh, it hits women differently than it does men. And not only that, but again, it's addressing this highest need of community, which for women is not typically our highest need. Uh, and so uh, it's, 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 it's men's highest need often. They have a hard time connecting with one another. And so there's an unintentional gender bias associated with a simple church model like that that, that, that can unintentionally cater more toward the schedules of men and the, uh, the needs of men in, in connecting. But they're also just not good learning environments. They're just not good for structured learning, and we do need places for that. The way that I talk about this is uh, my daughter, Mary Kate, she just finished her BS in chemistry. And she believed that there were very real consequences for learning chemistry properly or improperly. That if she didn't know the way that chemicals combined, it could go badly for her. And that if she did know the way that they combined properly, that it could go well for her and for all who she influenced. And so when it was time for her to choose how to learn about chemistry, do you know what she did not do? 
She did not gather with a group of her, her peers and have a feelings level discussion of chapter five, paragraph three of the chemistry textbook. She went and found somewhere where she could learn that subject because she believed that it was important to do so. And I would say with the Bible, the same thing is imminently true. We need to have a place where we do have peer interaction, but where we do work on our own and also where someone knows what's going on, has the gift of teaching, and is helping us pull forward because there are very real consequences, both good and bad, for learning our sacred text. So we've gone back to guarding what we call active, dedicated, learning environments at the village we uh, which is another fancy word for Sunday school because there's no school like the old school uh, we we are not a Sunday school model church and we never will be because we don't have a facility that will allow us to be so it takes a lot of work for us to make sure that we keep these spaces available but we're committed to it because um, we want people to know when they come, our highest, highest stated purpose is learning. There's no doubt you're going to form community while you're here, but our highest stated purpose is learning. So if you're perceiving your lack, we want you to come here. And we believe that the local church, and this is a privileged room that you're in right here. Think how many people will never have the opportunity to be here. The local church has to be able to reach everyone who is not able to come and sit in this room and enjoy the active, dedicated learning environments that you are you know, you're paying to be a part of. Uh, and so the local church can provide that at varying levels for its people, and, and they must. I think it's critical to the mission of the church. Yeah, thank you. Y'all, you can clap. We have just a few minutes left, and I want to turn our, um, our thoughts to one more topic, and that's developing leaders. Uh, I think leadership is the crisis in the church in North America, uh, right now, um, uh, but in particular, uh, trying to develop female leaders for the church. Half the church is, are females. Um, more than half the church is females. Um, and God has called all of his people to be on mission um, and to use their gifts and, the, and their talents to, to equip the church and build the church up. Um, and it as you're, as you're in your work, Jen, and Dr. Aiken is what we're trying to do here at Southeastern, um, trying to develop female leaders, what do you see as the number one biggest challenge? I know there's a lot of challenges, but there's the number one biggest challenge in developing female leaders in the local church uh, from your perspective, Jen. I'm going to cheat and give you two. The first is a, a misunderstanding that the gifts that God gives to women are nice but not necessary. Uh, we, we have to shift to understand that the gifts that God gives, God does not give needless gifts. Uh, so if a woman has the gift of teaching and she's in your church and there's nowhere to utilize it, that is a wastefulness the church cannot afford. And that even if the men in the church appear to be flourishing because there are places for them to serve, that if the women are not flourishing, then the men are not actually truly flourishing because the image of God is not represented in that body the way that it should be. So once we begin to make the shift to understanding the gifts of women as essential and indispensable to the mission of God instead of nice but not necessary, then we begin to think differently about ministries that we're implementing and who we're placing in what seats, what is the role of pastor elder, what is essential that that person needs to do, and other than that, where might we place a woman in a role that we've typically only put a man in previous to this. 
Um, and then I would say that the other big obstacle that's out there is a fear-based obstacle. And it is that as soon as we start talking about putting women into these roles, we are on a slippery slope. That's right. Um, heaven forbid that what we might actually be doing is gently course correcting for something that has been overstated. Uh, but at the village, I'm so grateful to my leaders there that they said convictionally, we want to be able to answer to the Lord for the way that we've stewarded the gifts of men and women. So people can yell slippery slope at us until they're blue in the face. We're going to actually show in the way that we have deployed the gifts of both men and women that it's possible to inhabit a space that is not a slippery slope and to do it with balance and conviction. Dr. Aiken, what would you add? I wouldn't add much at all. I would affirm 100% what she said. I would say it like this. I think the big challenge is to be rigorously biblical and not allow our traditions uh, or the pressures of the culture, uh, our traditions coming from the right, uh, the culture coming from the left, to uh, dictate how we uh, flesh out biblical truth. Uh, I'm grateful that we are at a school now where we're not asking the question uh, what women can't do, but we're asking the question, what can women do? And we're unapologetically a complementarian school, and we make no apologies for that. But again, so many, and, and I'm a, uh, a board member of the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, so I, you can't hardly be much higher up in that world than, than I am. Uh, at the same time, uh, some of my complementarian brothers, and a few sisters, but more brothers, I fear allow traditions to influence their understanding of the text more than what the scriptures actually say. And so I always say, I will draw the lines very tightly and very clearly where the Bible draws the lines and where the Bible gives freedom, I'm going to rejoice in that. And I love the way that Jen put it, God gives all of his children and the gifts that he gives all of us are not nice. They may be nice, but that's not their primary uh, focus. They're necessary, and we do indeed inhibit the health of the body if we don't release all of our brothers and sisters to soar for the glory of God with the giftedness that God has given them. So I'm hoping that we can create what I call a, a kinder, gentler, healthier complementarianism, and I'm with her. We're going to do what we're going to do, and the naysayers can say what they want to. I don't give a rip. Again, uh, Jen, thank you so much for being here. Dr. Aiken, thank you for making this a priority and being here, being a part of this panel. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.